Hello and welcome to the Redeeming Disorder podcast, episode three of this revamped Redeeming Disorder podcast. We are picking up some momentum and we're off of social media now, so if you're liking these vulnerable conversations in which I don't edit out my goofs like that about mental health, and you are not already subscribed, please go ahead and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And if you have time, I would love it if you could rate the podcast and leave a review. Of course, if you hate the podcast, please don't leave a review. Please just leave. Anyway, it is not the typical vulnerable conversation of someone's personal narrative of their mental health struggles that you're used to. We will be getting right back to those next week. But this week, Rather than my guest's experience, we're drawing on my guest's expertise. And my guest is Dr. Stephen Gundry. Gundry, Dr. Gundry, the Gund, whatever you prefer. He is the author of a book called The Plant Paradox, which draws on his evolutionary biology background, draws on the things Dr. Gundry has seen as a heart surgeon in his research, and that he sees today in his patients and in blood work, investigating the effects of what we eat on our general health and well-being, and therefore, definitely by extension, our mental health. So, alarm bells may have just gone off. A lot of books that talk about what to eat and that advocate a specific diet are kind of scammy. They typically are fads, they get really popular, and then they fade in popularity. And the plant paradox has done that. But what's different here is Dr. Gundry draws on evolutionary biology to take a really novel and I think revelatory look at plant consciousness and at why, from an evolutionary background, these seemingly docile, immobile beings, plants, could have adaptations to avoid being consumed by predators. It makes sense. Animals do it by running away. Plants do it by becoming very good chemists, essentially, and creating plant proteins called lectins, which secretly, quietly, in the small intestine and in places that we don't typically see, wreak havoc on our guts and on our health, alongside the millions of things that in a modernized, industrialized culture, especially one like America, and especially, specifically, America, the many things that wreak havoc on our health from disruptors and chemicals that make their way into our products, cleaning products, beauty products, water, medicine, or so-called medicine, over-the-counter drugs like Advil, painkillers. There's a lot that's messed up with how we eat and how we live in the U.S. And one thing I appreciated about Dr. Gundry, as opposed to other authors of diet books or diet fads or people trying to sell you stuff, is Dr. Gundry has always been very open, he's very open about it in the book and in person, about the fact that 85% or more of the benefit that you're going to get from any diet, including his, is simply cutting out all of the BS in certainly the standard American diet, but really in places all around the world where industrialization and modernization and the processing of food is becoming more and more popular. So it's not just Dr. Gundry who is caught on to this and caught on to the ill effects of industrialization, not only today, but in the longer trajectory of humanity and the past 
say, couple hundred years, couple centuries. And so another book that speaks to that and the effects it's had on our nasal passages and our breathing, which is also so fundamental to health and to your mental health. So that book is called Breath. It's by a guy named James Nestor. When people ask me for a book recommendation, especially with meditation stuff, I often don't even say a meditation book. I say Breath by James Nestor because one thing James Nestor uncovers in that book is that when it comes to what we can do proactively to help our mental health, meditating, establishing some quiet in the mind, if formal meditation is not really approachable for you, simply sitting down for five minutes, breathing in for six seconds, breathing out for six seconds, and repeating that, timing yourself uh, through the nose and calmly will have a profound effect on your state of mind. If you do this for five minutes, so five full breaths per minute for five minutes, you will definitely notice a change in your state of mind and a sense of calm. And so that's a great approachable thing you can do if you haven't been so into the meditation stuff. Uh, if you have been into the meditation stuff, then this conversation with Dr. Gundry is especially interesting given that he comes at this from a broader, more holistic perspective of consciousness. He's actually considering plant consciousness. And, you know, even if you don't want to think about it as plant consciousness or plant thinking per se, you can just think about it as adaptive plants, the adaptations plants have made through evolutionary biology to not get eaten by their predators. And so those are lectins and the stuff that we talk about with Dr. Gundry. We set up those very core fundamental concepts from his book, but we do not get into his overall recommendations in the book. We don't get into exactly what he recommends for revamping your diet. It is a little bit of fasting to clear out the holobiome and to reset, followed by eating according to a list of foods. So he has these two lists, and that's the most concise way to, if you're curious, if you do want to know what he recommends, that's the most concise way to learn how to eat according to his diet. And so you could just Google Dr. Gundry food lists, yes, no food lists, and you'll find that. But for this interview, it is a little more interesting than that and full of anecdotes, full of interesting stories from Dr. Gundry's perspective on the survivor diet and fasting to some really interesting experiments on those subjects and on calorie restriction. Dr. Gundry goes into an experiment called Biosphere 2 in the Arizona desert where researchers made a terrarium and built this environment where people would stay for one year with <laughs> the idea to test if they could live on Mars sustainably for one year and then it goes terribly and turns into an experiment about calorie restriction. So very interesting stuff, very interesting stuff on misconceptions we have in our diet, on how even supposedly purportedly healthy foods, whole grains, certain types of vegetables, nightshade vegetables, things that are relatively novel in the scope of evolutionary biology, how those can be harmful. Uh, Dr. Gundry talks about blue zones and how people eat in parts of the world where longevity is the highest. And most relevantly to this podcast, most relevantly to you, is Dr. Gundry's insight on how diet is really very fundamental to mental health. It's not just the brain-gut connection, but it's also the connection directly from the holobiome and the microbiome that is in the gut to the brain. The microbiome can actually communicate directly with mitochondria in the brain. 
it's recently being discovered. And so the more we look at diet, the more we look at mental health and its relationship to the whole body, not just the brain, the more we've actually come to realize how essential the gut is, how essential the holobiome is, and therefore how essential diet is. Just one more warning, you might notice some background noise in this podcast, some ambient noise, some people talking in the background. It's because in order to interview Dr. Gundry, I had to actually go to his medical practice in Palm Springs, California. And so we are sitting in the doctor's office amidst everything he does day to day with Medicaid patients and others helping them with their health. So the noises won't be too obtrusive, but I just thought I would throw out that forewarning. Uh, hey, yeah. Oh, bye. Love you. Oh, nice. Good. It's good to hear. I'm still recording. Do you want to hop on the intro? Yes. <laughs> Come on. Say, uh, say, and now for the interview with Dr. Gundry. And now for the interview with Dr. Gundry. All right. <laughs> Love you. Love you. Okay. So uh, I think I'll, I'll kick off the interview just with a brief apology, because I don't know if you remember, but our, your first contact with me was seeing this tweet here. Ah, yes. yes yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it was tongue in cheek, and I hope everyone got the <laughs> sarcasm. But I was joking that, you know, after reading your book, I learned all I need is to not eat vegetables, and I'm good. So, so yeah. Pe some people actually claim I'm the father of the carnivore diet because of that. Oh, I, I could see how they would get there. Yeah. I saw an interview you did once also with a proponent of the carnivore diet, a doctor. Yeah. Paul Saladino. Could have been, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it does, I think, speak to that potential to lose the nuance that we have in nutritional science and the difficulty with nuance. And, you know, we've seen it with many things like cholesterol is evil and all of our woes and ills are because of gluten. So I guess speaking to that latter point, do you want to just catch my audience up to what your work is about and introduce them to the concept that's core to your work of lectins? Well, so I mean, lectins, I certainly didn't discover. Um, mm -hmm. Lectins have been known about since actually the mid-1800s. Lectins in general are sticky proteins that are used by plants to protect themselves and their babies, their seeds, uh, against being eaten. And one of the hard things for people to realize is that plants in general do not want to be eaten. They, <laughs> they have a life. And mm -hmm. In general, they can't run or hide or fight, but they're chemists of incredible ability. So they use biologic warfare against their predators, and they also use biologic inducement to get their predators to eat the parts of them that they want their predators to eat, like, for instance, fruit. Mm -hmm. So lectins were discovered as a way of typing blood, and turns out that there's sugar molecules on the surface of red blood cells that attract specific lectins. And depending on which lectin, you can tell what kind of blood you have, whether it's O or A, and every one of those blood types have a different lectin that they're interested in. So I got interested initially in lectins way back when I was an undergraduate at Yale University, where I had a special major in human evolutionary biology. And my thesis, which I had to defend, was you can take a great ape, 
manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, and you can prove that you'll get a human being. And that was audacious, but anyhow, I defended my thesis and got an honors. And so that got me started. What really began to interest me is when I was professor and chairman of heart surgery at Loma Linda University, I was sent a patient who I call Big Ed in all my books, who was this big overweight guy who had inoperable coronary artery disease. And he had gone around the country looking for some idiot like myself to operate on him, and everybody turned him down. And he arrived at Loma Linda with his angiogram, the cardiac catheterization, the movie of his heart. And from Miami, Florida, six months earlier, and I said, you know, everybody's right. There's nothing I can do for you. I'd love to help you, but there's everything's blocked. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, look, you know, I've been on a diet for six months, and I've gone to a health food store, and I've taken all these supplements. Maybe I did something here. And this guy had lost about 45 pounds in six months, and he was 265 when I met him. So that gives you an idea how big he was. Yeah, wow. And so we got another angiogram on the guy. And in six months' time, this guy had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. And that's impossible. Um, you know, it does not happen. So we started talking. I said, you know, tell me all about this diet and let me look at these supplements. And turns out his, the diet he described was my research at, at Yale. And what's so poignant about it is at that time, I was a big, overweight, fat, obese guy, even mm -hmm. though I was running 30 miles a week and I was going to the gym uh, every day uh, at 4.30 in the morning. And I was eating a healthy, pretty much vegetarian diet because Loma Linda is a vegetarian institution. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out well, you know, why, why I'm such a big, giant, fat guy. Mm -hmm. And I had arthritis and migraine headaches and high blood pressure and prediabetes. Yeah, you mentioned you had the genetic predispositions for a whole laundry list of things. Well, it turns out there is no such thing as a genetic predisposition. I was told... There's no such thing as a genetic predisposition for... Eight, eight for any of this stuff. For any there's disease? About, there's about 8% gene contribution to disease. There's about a 92% food and microbiome contribution. Mm. So it's there, but it's negligible. It really is negligible. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I take care of a huge number of people with the APOE3444 gene, which is the, quote, Alzheimer's gene. And Dr. Dale Bredesen, who wrote The End of Alzheimer's, is probably the, the world expert on Alzheimer's disease. He and I uh, really think that even if you carry that gene, and 30% of people carry that gene, mm -hmm. you don't have to get Alzheimer's. Right. Um, so, so I am. Yeah. So mm -hmm. genes have very little to do with all this. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're seeing Big Ed, you saw the dramatic improvement, and then you also dramatically improved yourself. Where did the discovery, not of lectins themselves, but of the importance of lectins come in? Well, so what I did was I looked at, you know, our quote, ancient diet, if you wanted to call it the paleo diet or ancestral diet, and major lectin-containing foods, which are grains and beans, only arrived in our diet about 10,000 years ago. 
For instance, rice only started being cultivated 8,000 years ago. So these were very modern additions to our diet. Right. And then there were a number of other lectin-containing foods that entered our diet about 500 years ago with Colombian trade. Columbus started bringing American foods right. um, to not only Europe, but also to Asia. And so really none of us had ever been exposed to American uh, plants until 500 years ago. Right. And some of those are pretty mischievous, like, like <laughs> yeah. corn and quinoa and the nightshade family. Uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, the Italians refused to eat tomatoes after uh, Columbus brought them back for 200 years. They, they called them poison apples. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, good description. So um, these are fairly modern into our repertoire. And one of the things that my critics uh, would say is that, well, wait a minute, you look at all the blue zones, the healthiest, longest living people in the world, they all eat these things. Well, in fact, they don't. And I'm actually the only nutritionist who's ever lived most of his career in a blue zone, Loma Linda, California. <laughs> the Okinawans uh, eat white rice, but they only eat about 6% of their diet is white rice. Mm -hmm. Most of it is purple sweet potato. The Acciarolis in southern Italy don't eat any grains at all. They don't eat bread. They don't eat cereal grains. They eat mostly uh, anchovies and a lot of olive oil and a lot of wine. But <laughs> So um, getting back to the point, these, are, these lectin-containing foods are fairly new. So I took these foods out of my diet because that's what I had written about in my book and I lost 50 pounds my first year and all of these so-called genetic problems disappeared and so then I, I actually asked my patients who I operated on at Loma Linda after I operated on them to take these foods out of their diet and let's see what happens and lo and behold they're high blood pressure went away, their diabetes went away, and after about a year of this at Loma Linda, I made the stupid idea of I shouldn't operate on people first and then teach them how to eat. I should teach them how to eat, and maybe I won't have to operate on them. So I, I It's a big paradigmatic shift in, in Western medicine, I would say, where there's much more emphasis on the former. Oh, yeah. Well, because none of us were, you know, were ever taught uh, that this is possible. And we should have been taught because Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, the father of medicine, said all disease begins in the gut. And he didn't have the human microbiome project. He, I mean, it, the guy, but the guy knew. And, mm. and the longer I've been doing this now, uh, over 20 years, the more Hippocrates was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And with, I mean, with every week we get more evidence yeah. that almost everything happens to us uh, happens in our gut. Yeah, I, I definitely believe it and I wouldn't have before and the doctors I talked to insisted that you know diet wasn't so important. Dermatologists, when I went to them for acne, said, oh, diet plays no factor, I can guarantee you. <laughs> as soon as I went on Survivor and cut out crappy processed foods, uh, my skin completely cleared up, my health completely changed. And my perspective completely changed in thinking, wow, the holobiome, I guess, really is important. 
But one other thing your critics would say, aside from many people who have eaten this way live in blue zones, is also that doesn't cooking remove lectins? So how do you respond to people who question, you know, whether cooking uh, meat that ended up getting lectins in it because of how it was sourced, or just nitrate vegetables or lectin-containing foods that are cooked? How do you know those still are harmful after cooking? Well, so lectins are heat-stable proteins, and um, they do get destroyed with pressure cooker. And anyone who would listen, I urge people to mm. have pressure cooked beans or yeah. pressure cooked tomatoes, for instance. There's a great anecdote in your book about pressure cooked quinoa and, and shifting to it. Yeah, and so yes, cooking does help break down lectins, but it certainly doesn't destroy them. And there's actually an obscure paper um, that shows pressure cooking won't destroy gluten which happens to be a lectin. And we've had a number of my patients, uh, including a nurse who I talk about in, in The Plant Paradox, try her darndest to uh, pressure cook oats and wheat uh, for her grandchildren, and she would get migraine headaches whenever she would eat a lectin-containing food, massive migraine. Even pressure-cooked, you're saying? Even pressure-cooked mm. uh, grains, uh, not wheat and oats. Oats have a uh, very similar protein to gluten. It crosses, cross-reacts. So even if you see gluten-free oats, don't believe it. It, it just doesn't <laughs> right. Well, I see gluten-free everything. I see oh, gluten-free tomatoes. I, I, yeah, and I just, and I just uh, presented a paper in March at the American Heart Association uh, Lifestyle and Epidemiology meeting showing that 70% uh, of people who are celiac or who are gluten-sensitive don't get better, don't get resolution until you take away their gluten-free foods. 70% mm. uh, of people who react to wheat react to corn as if it was wheat. Whoa. And most people, yeah, there's, a, there's what's called a corn-wheat epitope overlap, and your immune system can't tell the difference. Wow. And corn is so fundamental to so many things we eat in this country. Correct, and it's fundamental to so many gluten-free foods. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one of the things that I actually talked about in The Plant Paradox. There was a very good study out of Europe looking at people with biopsy-proven celiac disease, which is the gold standard, mm -hmm. putting them on a gluten-free diet for 16 months, re-biopsying them, and 70% of them still had celiac on a gluten-free diet after a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And that's because they were still eating lectins. Mm. other lectins besides gluten. Mm. Right. And so the big shift in understanding lectins is that this whole gluten craze was just harping in on one particular lectin and missing the bigger picture. Correct. Now, I think the other thing that my critics don't get in the book is that none of this would have happened if our defense system against plant lectins and other plants proteins hadn't been decimated mm -hmm. by our modern lifestyle. Right. You know, our, our antibiotics have pretty much killed off our, our microbiome, our olibiome. And there's bugs that love eating lectins. There are gluten-eating bugs. They think they're delicious. Sure. But they just, they've been killed off. We've killed off the mucus layer of the lining of our gut. We've destroyed the acid in our stomach, and acid is a pretty good 
you know, way of dissolving protein and lectins are proteins. So every time we take a Prilosec OTC or a Nexium to have a corn dog, we're actually depleting our ability to handle lectins. Mm -hmm. And these, you know, old societies that have never been exposed to our plethora of antibiotics in our meats, for instance, they have a great defense system. It's like saying an NFL team with all, you know, their first-line players is a whole lot different than an NFL team with injuries, and now you're you know, pulling people off the street to um, be the defensive line. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> may the have the defensive tackle. They may, yeah, they may <laughs> have the same name, but you know, they're, they're the San Francisco 49ers, <laughs> but it's not yeah. the same team. Yeah, That's, yeah. So how, how, to what extent? can gut lining and our defense systems be rebuilt, not just from the devastation of antibiotics and all the disruptors in your book, but also I'm curious about, you know, people who didn't necessarily have the holobiome they needed to have to start with. Like I was a, a C-section birth, mm -hmm. and often you see that, you know, you don't get the, you don't go through the birth canal and have the holobiome you would have. Correct. Uh, to what extent can that damage be undone in either case? So it, with, you know, with modern techniques of looking at leaky gut, which are, you know, are now available, uh, first of all, I can say if you have any disease process, you have leaky gut, period. If you have an autoimmune disease, you have leaky gut. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have acne, you have leaky gut. And mm -hmm. I had acne as a kid. And I was given antibiotics for, oh gosh, probably 10 years now for my acne, because mm. no, you know, food has nothing to do with <laughs> And then with... you become a Petri dish of these, of these, uh... <laughs> all the bad bugs. Yeah. yeah, getting resistant to the antibiotics. Right, yeah. so, so we found that in general, uh, most people can start to, you can see the progress in sealing leaky gut in about three months. The longest I've ever seen a patient go before they sealed their gut was nine months to a year. And these were really I mean, bad off, multiple mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases. Before they sealed their gut by going on the Plant Paradox program? Yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, using some supplements. Do you ever, you know, do you ever get your gut flora where you want it? Um, you know, uh, David Leach, who was part of the American Gut Project, um, went over to the Hansa and studied them extensively, one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes uh, in the world over in Africa, in Tanzania. And he even was crazy enough to uh, give himself uh, fecal enemas from Hansa tribesmen. He used it. Mm -hmm, he used mm -hmm. a turkey baser to do it. Um, <laughs> wow. Fun, fun story. Yeah, wow. And there was a South Park about something similar. <laughs> yeah, so, so he, he changed his microbiome temporarily, mm -hmm. but within a couple of weeks of returning back to the United States, he completely transformed back. Hmm. But um, the point of both the longevity paradox, my previous book, and the upcoming energy paradox is that you can actually manipulate the microbiome by time-restricted feeding, eating. You can use prebiotics selectively to get the bugs that you that they want it, want to eat these prebiotics. Right. And the bugs, in turn, will actually 
do you a favor and control almost everything that happens to you, including your emotions. Mm. Well, that's a great segue to asking about the connection between gut and mental health that I know in the book you talk about it briefly. You mentioned the vagus nerve and how it connects the colon to the brain. And there's so much focus on the brain with mental health, so much focus on up here. The logo for my podcast is a brain. But why could the gut be just as, if not more important? Yeah, I think you know, Dr. Daniel Amen, uh, who I've come to know through the years, now, and I don't, he was on my podcast recently, he thinks that most mental health issues are actually coming from the gut. For years, we've known that there are the neurons in the gut, lining the gut, there are more neurons in the gut than there are in the spinal cord. Mm. But So we've been focused on those neurons, but then people started saying, well, wait a minute, what are those neurons doing down there? <laughs> Who are they getting information from? And it turns out, and I go into this extensively in the energy paradox, we now know that they're getting information from the microbiome. And so rather than a gut-brain access, we now have to think of a microbiome-gut-brain access. Mm. And as people see in the energy paradox, we don't even need the neurons in the gut to get the information. There are now direct connections with a language between the microbiome and their sisters who are mitochondria in the brain and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a language that's been discovered of how our microbiome actually talks to our brain. And controls our brain. <laughs> and, you know, we don't like to think that way because, you know, we're the most advanced organism in the, in the world. But no, um, it turns out that even the microbiome talks to each other, that there are species that are dependent on other ones. In fact, you know, if the next rave party you go to, um, <laughs> realize that the microbiome figured out raves long before there's what's called quorum sensing and bacteria can sense when enough similar bacteria have gathered in an area to make a move on the gut wall on the brain and it's called quorum sensing so these little single cell organisms wow have intelligence and like like i say they invented the rave billions of years ago long before we ever thought about it Sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm a serious meditator, so I've become more comfortable with the idea that my thoughts aren't my thoughts and I'm not in control. But there is still something unsettling about the idea that the gut is pulling all the strings in these tiny, tiny microorganisms. Well, you know, again, if you think about it, we're basically, at least in my opinion, a condominium for this, these bacteria and fungi and viruses. And we're their home. And they... As long as we're taking care of them, the interesting thing is they'll, they'll take care of us. But if we let what I call gang members uh, take over, that gang members will, mm -hmm. will hijack us. Those little gut microbes that want junk food, yeah. are those the gang members? Yeah, it, well, and it turns out, so we've evolved what we thought about how all this happened over the years and back when I was writing The Plant Paradox, we knew that there were obesogenic bugs 
that we could transplant in mice or we could take fat people's uh, stool and feed them to rats or mice. They're skinny and they'll become fat. Mm -hmm. And we thought- Or even happy rats to- Yeah, exactly. Years ago, they gave fecal enemas to depressed people from happy people, and it actually worked. Yeah. So, Why isn't that more common? Um, I imagine it's a tough sell as a treatment. <laughs> it's a tough sell, but right now, I think for good reason, the FDA is really going very slow on fecal transplants, even for, for instance, C. difficile, because we don't know enough about what else is coming along. We're, we're touching the surface, but we don't know enough. So getting back to the obesogenic bugs, we mm-hmm. thought initially that these bugs were capable of extracting more calories from the things we ate and giving them to us, which yeah, makes sense. Now we realize that, oops, we were wrong these bugs are actually sending text messages to your brain, to your hunger center, to get them more of what they want to eat. So you overeat, and they like simple sugars and they like saturated fat, junk food. And so you can actually get rid of those guys and turns out your insatiable hunger for junk food goes away. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that they were extracting calories more, they were controlling our brain to get more calories. It's like, holy cow. (laughs) It is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, and and actually, since you brought up meditation, in the longevity paradox, there's very good studies that meditators actually change their gut microbiome to a more friendly, if you will, gut microbiome. Mm. And there's been some good human studies, uh, yeah. placebo-controlled, um, some some army recruits. Uh, and it's, so, so there is a brain-gut connection but there, and a, a brain-microbiome connection, but same goes each way. Sure, yeah. Hopefully that's an exciting frontier for future research because so I'm actually also uh, finishing an MA and doing my thesis on long-term meditation and the effects and there's so much that's come from neuroscience and looking at the physiological changes in the brain and not much into the gut. So yeah, that, that should be interesting. But yeah. I'd, I'd like to get into fasting sure. because you mentioned changing the gut and per the Plant Paradox program, that seems to be the most effective way to do that quickly to fast and then quickly change sort of the population of the holobiome. Are there limits to fasting? Because, you know, I've, uh, I've fasted for a very long time and I've wondered about what harms could have come from that. Do you have some rough guidelines on fasting? Yeah, I think, I think one of the dangers of fasting, particularly for Americans, is that we, like all other animals, store heavy metals and organopesticides and herbicides in our fat. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's in our fat, believe it or not, it's really not very troublesome. A swordfish or a tuna may have toxic levels of mercury, but it's you know a thousand pound animal that's stronger than you and I would ever be, and yet he's loaded with you know toxic mercury. And that's because it's in the fat. And as long as you're not losing weight rapidly, 
you don't release those out of your fat. Actually, I talk about it in multiple books. Ray Wolford, who was the father of calorie restriction, he was a pathologist at UCLA. Uh, long before I think you were born, there was an experiment in the Arizona desert called Biosphere 2. And Biosphere 2, they built some geodesic domes, and the idea was to prove that you could live on Mars for a year without being supplied with anything. You would grow your own food, you would produce your own oxygen, and so they built essentially a terrarium and human volunteers, they were called biospherians, went in and the object was, you're going to live in there for a year, good luck. <laughs> and uh, it was a horrible failure. Um, the, the biospherians lost 37% of their weight in six months time. And Ray Wolford was really into calorie restriction and he's you know he's just rubbing his hands going man this is great this is the i couldn't have designed a better experiment to see what calorie restriction does because they were just dropping mm. weight and mm -hmm. in, in fact their cholesterols got better their blood pressure lowered everything that he had predicted but uh another one of the researchers says you know we're losing weight really fast we should be looking at heavy metals in our blood and see. And sure enough, when they looked at it, and it's a nice obscure paper, they found that their heavy metals went sky high and it took about a year wow. for them to return to normal. Now, why? Did they then, though, return to lower levels than previously to where they got out of the system or? Eventually, but it took, yeah. it took a year yeah. to get out of the system. Yeah, that and that's because we, we have a horrible uh, detoxification system for heavy metals. In fact, we can't detox heavy metals. So the liver says, well, uh, I can't change these things. I'm going to put it in bile and I'm just going to squirt it down to the intestines. And the good news is, you know, he'll poop it out. Uh, no, unfortunately, we love heavy metals. And so we will once it gets in bile, we actually reabsorb them from mm. our intestines. So this is why these folks' heavy metals stayed so high. The minute it was excreted in bile, you reabsorbed it, and it never left mm. because there weren't enough fat cells to deposit it in. Mm. So um, he had a great formula, which I actually used myself, that the fastest weight loss should be 50 pounds in a year. 25 pounds in six months, 12 and a half pounds in three months, about, yeah. about a pound a week. Yeah. And I think... And, uh, so my 25 pounds in 39 days wasn't great. That was probably really dumb. Um, <laughs> now it's probably gone. Your heavy metals yeah. are gone. So you have to... Not, not that I had a choice once I was correct. doing it. Yeah. Uh, but if you take activated charcoal and chlorella, it'll actually bind heavy metals and then you'll poop them out. So. Whenever I uh, do fasting or, you know, counseling people with fasting, I make sure that they're taking chlorella and activated charcoal as part of their regimen. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it was also remarkable the, uh, the speed of weight gain back. I lost so 20, about 25 pounds each time, 37 and 39 days. And each time I gained all the way back in two to four days, four days the first time, two days the second time. And no doctors believed me, but I, I measured it and I'm sure that that happened. And I'm taking it was because it was a lot of water weight 
that I had lost. Uh, but then also, uh, and this is where I'm curious about your perspective, my metabolism changed and my ability to metabolize food seemed to go away to where I was getting these sacks of fluid around my ankles. I learned all these things about human physiology I never would have known that this is what happens apparently if you don't eat for long enough. Well, true. You, um, your metabolic rate goes down and goes down and goes down. And I talk about this in the energy paradox about why that happens. The other problem is that with prolonged fasting, you, you certainly all of us have plenty of fat to use up. Even very thin people have mm -hmm. plenty of fat. But part of the problem that people don't talk about is that everybody says, well, once you're in ketosis, your brain does just fine using ketones as a fuel, except that if, except that that's not true. The brain, even at full ketosis, you can only meet the brain's requirement for fuel by about 70%, maybe 80% with ketones. Uh, okay. The other 30% or 20%, we won't argue too much, has to come from glucose. And you can't keep up with the brain just with ketones. Mm -hmm. You can't produce enough of them. Mm -hmm. So the glucose has to come from gluconeogenesis in the liver, and it has to unfortunately come from protein. Mm. Now, we can make glucose out of protein very easily. So we start pulling from our you know, protein stores, our muscle mass. Sure. But more importantly, and this gets really nerdy, um, <laughs> mitochondria, the little energy-producing organelles, will make protein to protect themselves, but they'll stop making protein to make muscle. And so it's kind of a double whammy. So. What happens with so many people is uh, a protein in their blood called albumin, uh, which is actually what keeps water uh, in our blood vessels, gets really depleted. And so then you, you re-eat and you actually, you start getting all these calories, but they can't stay in the blood vessels. So you can actually swell um, mm -hmm. and you'll yeah. put on a lot of water weight. Yeah. yeah. And it probably didn't help that my instincts were just to eat as much as humanly possible. And I was literally eating literally four dinners at a dinner, you know, 4,000 calories in a sitting multiple times a day. So, yeah, on all fronts probably was putting my body through the ringer. Yeah, but good for you for, you know, doing some fun, stupid stuff. <laughs> I guess that's what your early 20s are for. That's what they're for. <laughs> Usually by the time you get to 25, you, you go, hmm. Yeah, start have to think about a little more, which I'm starting to do. I mean, I uh, am currently revamping the diet according to this book, and my girlfriend agreed to do it with me. Oh, fine. Yeah, glad to be able to to ask all the questions now. It's it's tough to, to shop for things and, and be confident that everything is according to the sources you look for in food, given the extreme labeling that's out there and all of these buzzwords we're inundated with, all natural, etc., and some mean something, some don't. Uh, how, how would you help people make sense of the landscape? Well, I mean, there is actually no definition for all natural. There's no federal requirement. Right. The laws for free-range chicken are rather humorous. The, <laughs> the laws was, was passed for labeling a free-range chicken in 2007. And the, the actual law is you can keep you know, chicken in a warehouse with a hundred thousand other chicken 
and you can feed them for instance you can feed them organic corn and soybeans and once a day for five minutes you can open a door off out of this warehouse to a three yard by three yard patch of dirt or grass and the chicken has the potential to go outside right and that's the definition and it just has to be open for five minutes that's they all you get probably all stay inside they all stay inside yeah. uh i used to raise chickens as a kid and they wouldn't be stupid oh, cool. they wouldn't <laughs> be stupid enough to stick their head out <laughs> yeah plus the interesting thing is i was actually talking with a farmer who now has a lectin free feed that he gives his uh, chickens in oh, texas cool farmer dan so we'll get into that in a second but he raises free-range chickens but he also raises pastured chickens. And he says the problem with free-range chickens that nobody talks about is these chickens grow so fast. You can go from an egg to selling a chicken in 21 weeks, which is just a little over three months. And he said they grow so fast that they their legs break and they can't hold themselves up oh wow and so the reason they're crammed into these tight spaces is because they literally hold themselves up i mean that's actually pretty doggone scary if you think about it pretty sad yeah the other thing that i think we're beginning to realize is that uh, chickens are natural insectivores and i grew up in nebraska and chickens were released out into the cow fields and they would go find the cow pies which were loaded with bugs and they would scratch through the cow pies and looking for bugs and they would distribute the manure and then they'd come back and they'd lay eggs and no one really thought about you know, killing a chicken because they were a farm animal except for maybe a sunday dinner mm -hmm. but the bugs and grasses are what their natural food is their natural food isn't corn and soybeans and so they're now fed omega-6 fats from the corn and soybeans that really were never in their diet. So you could have a organic free-range chicken and it would have inflammatory omega-6 fats instead of anti-inflammatory omega-3 fats. So it's one of the problems that, you know, a chicken is not a chicken anymore. And the same way with farm-raised salmon few years ago farm-raised salmon were actually fed ground up fish meal but fish are now very expensive so instead they feed farm-raised salmon corn and soybeans and so now this beautiful omega-3 you know wizard of wild salmon now makes omega-6 mm -hmm. in their fat mm -hmm. and so it's not only not good for you anymore it's bad for you because it's not really salmon. Right. And yeah. we see, and again, a consumer says, oh, it's organic Scottish salmon, or it's organic Norwegian salmon, or right. it's organic Canadian salmon. Right. Fed an all-vegetable diet. Yeah, all-vegetable <laughs> diet. It's not, it's not, yeah, and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what you want them to eat. <laughs> and nobody followed the salmon around the ocean went, making sure it ate organically. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, don't, don't eat that. It hasn't been certified. Salmon cans on them. Yeah. <laughs> so buyer beware. Yeah. And it's the same now with grass-fed beef or even grass-fed bison. Cows will eat on grass at least one day of their lives. 
and there is no certification for what grass-fed means. Mm. So you try your best to look for grass-fed, grass-finished. That means it never left grass. So many of the grass-fed animals are raised on grass, but then taken taken to the feedlot for their last couple months of their life and yeah. fed corn and soybean. Yeah. Yeah, so it's tough when these labels that are supposed to instill comfort in our current, you know, marketing era of food, organic, all natural, fed in all vegetable diet, and well, antibiotic free is something that you want to see, but but when those or even grass fed isn't sufficient when you would need grass fed and grass finished. And yeah. with chicken, it's I found it even uh, harder than that because with pastured chicken, you know, I was recently looking at a farm's pastured chicken and they mentioned that they have soy feed that they offer the chickens Correct. supplementally. Yeah. So how can we even know with pastured chicken how much they're actually foraging and eating bugs? Yeah, so most of the problem is almost all the companies uh, supplement their pastured chicken with feed. A couple of them now are removing soy and corn from the feed for... Are we allowed to mention a name? Or? Sure, yeah. So there's great. a place in Temecula, California called Primal Pastures. And they get pretty close. Uh, so they've removed corn and soy from, from their feed. Mm -hmm. But the more that these chickens you know, can get bugs and grass, the better. But the farmer has to make a, make a living. And the problem is, they, if you don't supplement these chickens, they don't grow very fast. Mm -hmm. And so there's, and like Farmer Dan, who I was interviewing, his lectin-free feed costs seven times the amount of his organic feed that he pastures his chickens with. And so... And it's like, okay, you know, how much are you willing to pay yeah. for all this? It's almost as if the profit motive is at odds with our collective health. That's, that's very true. Yeah. That's very true. So the federal government, you know, banned uh, antibiotics from animal use in feedlots. However, there was a catch that if the veterinarian, who's usually uh, employed by the you know, co big corporation, suspects that a bird or a hog or a cow uh, might be sick, you're allowed to dose everybody with antibiotics and <laughs> still declare it's antibiotic-free. Yeah. It seems almost impossible to trust meat. Uh, it is. It, it's very difficult. And, you know, that's why, in general, uh, my wife and I, we, we eat pretty much vegan during the week. And that includes pressure-cooked beans, um, but we eat pretty much wild shellfish on the weekends. Mm. Um, yeah. And that does, and there's a lot of reasons why we do that. So we're vegetarians. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's kind of the, the direction I'm headed, although if, if the primal pastures is safe, I might give that a whirl. Yeah, give it a whirl. And that kind of segues into some of these questions I've got. I know we only have about 10 minutes left. And uh, so I'd like to do a little speed round, if you're okay with mm -hmm, that. Sure. Ask some rapid fire questions. Yeah. So on the subject of protein, uh, is protein not essential if one is trying to build muscle? Well, believe it or not, nobody asked a gorilla or a horse if they're getting <laughs> enough protein from eating leaves and grass. Mm -hmm. You know, all the largest animals in the world, all they their only protein source is leaves or grass, and they do very well with that. As you know, there are now some great 
triathletes and athletes that are vegan and they get all of their protein from plant sources. There's plenty of protein, even in, you know, asparagus or broccoli. Now, do you have to eat a lot of it? Yes, you do. But there's certainly, you can get protein from hemp. Uh, hemp's got a great source of protein. Mm -hmm. um, there's some, I think, a really great protein source that comes from uh, mycelia of basically mushroom roots, uh, which is called corn, Q-U-O-R-N. And it's vegetarian. It has a little bit of egg white in it. Most of the corn products are horrible because they've got grains and beans. And I mean, and, but there are a number of corn products that taste exactly like ground chicken. Uh, and so I'll use mm. that a lot. Mm. So, so try there, it are, there are different ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which fish, if any, are safe to eat every single day? Oh, great question. Um, you the. You know, quite frankly, sardines and anchovies and herring, small fish. Like I said, the Acciaroli in southern Italy and south of Naples, who I've visited, the longest living people in the world, more people over 100 than any other population in the world. 30% of the population is over 100. What? 30% 30% of the population are centenarians? Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And they eat anchovies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. And yeah, so... Use small fish if you're going to do it. Yeah. The only people I've actually, we measure omega-3 levels in all of our patients. The only people who have consistently had normal, uh, safe, high omega-3 levels are sardine eaters and herring eaters who do it on a daily basis. Okay. Do you remember halibut actually does have quite a bit of mercury in it? Most people don't know that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, you know, make... And it doesn't mean you can't have swordfish, and it doesn't mean you can't have tuna, but you have to say, is this going to be a you know, tiny proportion of my diet? Right. So I'm curious about parasites and parasite cleanses. Uh, I know a lot of people on Survivor get parasites, and I recently you know, thought maybe I have parasites lingering, and I took a parasite cleanse that was a lot of herbs. Mm -hmm. It was yellow dock, black walnut, garlic, fennel seed, Hyssop, I'm not sure what that is. Powdarko, peppermint, mm -hmm. ginger, licorice, wormwood, cloves, thyme, cayenne, milk thistle, marshmallow, mm -hmm. uh, burdock, alicampane, fenugreek, sage, mm -hmm. and cascara sagrada. And uh, so I'm curious if, if you view a cleanse like that, a parasite cleanse like that, as, as valid. Well, the, the last ingredient is a, one of the most potent laxatives there is, mm -hmm. and that's actually how all that worked. The rest of the ingredients are actually, a number of them are in my uh, formula from Gundry MD to help heal the gut. Mm. So there's not actually a lot of anti-helmus in that concoction, but there's nothing like a little cascara to make you... Uh, crap your brains out <laughs> well they put less of that in there yeah <laughs> um so my we're supposed to have worms in a, a part of our holobiome they're supposed to be there mm -hmm. there's there used to be there's actually new evidence unearthed literally last week that medieval people had a very high worm load in their natural because Quite frankly, feces were getting intermixed with everything every day. There wasn't any sanitation. 
So we just pass worms to each other. Unless, you know, you're going out someplace out in the bush, um, most Americans don't have a big uh, parasite load. Yeah. Um, the, the exception to that is if you're eating a lot of lettuce, particularly if you're getting lettuce that comes from Mexico or south of the border, and even though it says organic, you're probably going to pick up Giardia. Mm -hmm. I get it every few months. And the good news is Pepto-Bismol actually gets rid of Giardia. It takes about a yeah. week. It's one of the most effective over-the-counter It really is. It I've really is. Yeah. <laughs> Shared it with my uh, this guy I met in England at a hostel. He'd never heard of it. It works like that often. But uh, let me be super rapid fire for these last okay. because I've got Real quick. maybe seven questions. All right, all right. How much tahini is okay to eat? Tahini may be the best food you can eat. Oh, period. Okay, my mom's going to be happy to hear that. Okay, so no <laughs> limits then. Uh, do you have any recommendations on foods for eyesight? I mean, everyone talks about carrots. Is there much you can do on that front? Um, you know, bilberry is actually probably the best for eyesight. That's what, what the um, the fighter pilots in England were given in World War II. Okay. It actually does improve eyesight. Okay. Bilberry. Okay, so what's your perspective on textural differences in foods like smoothies? You know, if you have uh, avocados that you're blending into smoothies, I know we're not talking about fruit or candy, but uh, <laughs> how much does that affect digestion and how it goes down? Well, you're supposed to chew food um, mm -hmm. and the, the whole mastication process is important. So you shouldn't make your entire diet of smoothies. <laughs> Although some people do. Yeah, that's fair. I, I recently, I'm actually currently reading this book called Breath by James yeah. Nestor. Yeah, I just interviewed him on my podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll have to listen to that. And he's absolutely right about that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot, to, a lot to work on with health for sure. Okay, so yeah, you just mentioned generally with, with foods moderation. And so, of course, that's going to be different for every different food. But are there tips you would give to help guide people on what moderation means or just particular foods you would say, okay, this is where the moderation is important? Well, I think, for instance, anti-fat hysteria is hopefully disappearing. But, you know, three of the blue zones use a liter of olive oil per week. And that's like 10 tablespoons a day. Wow. And so in that area, I think moderation in olive oil is a mistake. You should really try to get as much as, as possible. Okay, that's good to know. I love well, olive oil. Uh, and then last rapid fire question is, you know, on your list of yes, please foods. And for anyone listening who checks out the book, probably the most concise place you can see Dr. Gundry's recommendations is his list of foods that are say yes, please and just say no. But you have multiple fruits on your mm -hmm. yes, please list. Mm -hmm. And yet at one point in the book, you say that the only fruits that you know, aren't problematic are bananas, mangoes, and papayas that aren't too ripe. So where do you fall those, on yeah, those? Those are green, right. Mm -hmm. So those are prebiotics, and so they're good. But for instance, you should, I think, have fruit in season that's in season where you live. Mm. Uh, I think we make a mistake to think that any of our ancestors had access to fruit 365 days a year. Even in the jungle, fruit does not ripen 365 days a year. The Hanza do not eat fruit for about eight months. All great apes only gain weight during fruit season. And uh, I just showed a paper on that with my podcast the other day. So fruit in moderation. The berries are the safest. And of the berries, raspberries and blackberries are the safest. 
the least fructose is actually in passion fruit. Hmm. So get yourself some passion fruit. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for uh, sharing that as well as <laughs> your passion of the work you've done. There you uh, go, passion this fruit. Interview. Yeah. <laughs> no, this was, this was good, and I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. You've got a, do you have an appointment to scurry off to? Uh, it looks like it. Okay. <laughs> Patients win. Yeah. Happy to be able to share this. All right. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Gundry. He was very generous with his time, and so it was very fun to talk to him. I would have loved to have talked to him for a little longer and be able to do some of those questions not rapid fire and have more of an organic conversation like I like to do, but and I hope that you got something out of it, whether it's something practical and your new plan for how you're going to revamp your diet and eat healthy or whether it's just you know some tidbits and some thought-provoking food for thought, <laughs> not necessarily for your body. Uh, there's a lot to take out of that episode. And if nothing else, hopefully the conversation around diet and how much it does impact health and how much it does impact mental health can serve to remind us that with all the complexity of the dialogue around mental health, with all the complexity of psychiatry and what psychiatry thinks it has figured out and with the modern biomedical paradigms of diagnoses and the DSM-5 and everything we think about with mental health. Often it's the most basic, fundamental, simple, easy to do in theory but not necessarily easy to do in practice stuff that has the biggest impact. Uh, also, if you're going to take one thing away, I would take away that your gut and the things that thrive or die based on what you eat affect your thinking, affect your mood, and you could argue control your behavior. So if you've got, you know, a bad habit of soda or an addiction to this junk food or, you know, whatever it is, keep in mind that that is very based on habit. That's very based on what's in your gut already. If you were to say do a three-day water fast safely, you know, with supervision, maybe do a juice fast if you're not up to a water fast, and then start eating healthy from there, you can reset the population of your gut holobiome. And I've seen through Survivor firsthand how powerful this is. It blew me away each time I was on Survivor. I was amazed at how my acne just completely cleared up. And sure, some of that might have been climate, some of that might have been the air, some of that might have been the sun. But I have no doubt that diet played a huge role. And you know, not only from Survivor, but I've done plenty of intermittent fasting as well as fasting fasting. And if you try fasting, you will find that after just a few days, the makeup of your psyche, the makeup of what you crave, uh, completely changes. And you might find that those junk foods that you used to crave, that used to really have you wrapped around their finger or wrapped around their Frito or whatever, uh, don't anymore. Those patterns can change. And honestly, the concept of change and of doing pragmatic things for our mental health is always a tricky one. And in this podcast, it's been a challenge to find the right balance between presenting practical options, practical steps that can be taken, and giving resources while also not demonizing the states that the resources can help us get out of. Because... I've also found that if we are struggling with our mental health, if I'm struggling with my mental health, it doesn't so much help to demonize the state and say, I have to get out of this state, diet, medicine, meditation, whatever it is, just anything to get me out of this state. You know, 
whole other side of this is being able to be with the hard stuff, acknowledging that sadness and depression are parts of life. They come up for some people more than others, for some people less, for some people so much that it warrants a diagnosis like major depressive disorder. And through that constructed diagnosis, we can then approach the problem maybe a little better, use some tools that uh, we need to pull out for the more difficult cases. Um, but through it all, the reason I focus on real firsthand conversations of mental health and people's real stories of struggling with their mental health is to normalize this stuff. So the message here with this interview with Dr. Gundry isn't, hey, this is how you have to fix your mental health, eat this way. It's much more like, hey, this is a cool tool if you want to have a positive impact on your mental health amidst this larger conversation in this podcast of acknowledging the dark sides of our mental health, being okay with them, normalizing them, realizing we all have them, and hearing vulnerable stories about them from people who are brave enough to share. So next week, we will be getting right back to that. I still have boatloads of interviews, and I'm still conducting interviews that get into people's firsthand lived experiences with mental health and share their dark stuff, share their vulnerability, share their humanity, and share what's hopefully relatable for you. So if this podcast wasn't as relatable, I hope it was at least informative. I look forward to bringing you the relatable in the weeks to come. Every Thursday, I will still be releasing podcasts. I don't know when I'll stop. So for a long time at least, every Thursday, Redeeming Disorder will be in your ears if you want it to be. And if you want it to be, once again, it would be great if you could subscribe. It would be great if you could rate and review the podcast. I'm not going to be on social media. Speaking of things that hurt our mental health, social media is right up there with junk food. It's the junk food of the mind. So I won't be there. I will be here. Subscribe if you want to keep hearing me here. I'm excited to bring you more of it. Thank you for joining me today. And I'm wishing you all the best. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you next Thursday.